Uh, this morning, let's open up to Revelation chapter 18. We're going to hopefully do this whole chapter today, and that is a quite a daunting task. Quite a daunting task, but I'm going to try it. We're going to take communion today as well. Let's just get right into it. Um, Last week, the last three weeks actually, we've been talking about Revelation chapter 17 and this harlot church, the woman who rides the beast, this harlot church who is really kind of in in a dominant position over the end time government that we've been talking about for some time that the Antichrist will reside over. But this morning, we're going to see, after she has been destroyed, this harlot church, there comes a point where the Antichrist is like, I've had enough of being subservient to this uh, religious entity. And he's going to say within his heart, I want to be worshipped. And that is at the moment when we know that Satan will incarnate this man, will actually come in him, and he will desire to be worshipped. And we've looked at that quite a bit. And, um, and then the, that church, that harlot church, will be destroyed because he will place himself on the altar or upon the, um, you know, to, for people to look at, to be worshipped. And then there comes a time where God is going to then judge Babylon itself. Babylon, who we've been tracing the origins of that, going all the way back to Genesis 10 and 11, the, the, the really the origin of all things religious, uh, pagan religious uh, a system, it all takes its origin back in Babylon. Everything has been propagated from there, and we see it. It's very much alive in the world today, this apostate religious system. And we, don't, we, we not only see it in the Roman Catholicism, which is, I believe, the very foundation of it, but I believe it's also apostate protestantism and new age movements and groups that have come in and when the churches remove folks do you realize that's all that's going to be left and they are going to gravitate together and it's going to be like this unholy soup and it's going to be ugly the church is going to look horrible because the church actually the church is going to look glorious because we're going to be with the, the king of kings but the those on the earth that have uh, are a church uh, church in name only what do they call it a chino church in name only, (laughs) they are going to be here, unfortunately, and they are going to um, be in that false system. But this morning, we're going to look at chapter 18, where God is going to literally judge the city on the Euphrates called Babylon. Babylon. And, um, you know, the book of Revelation, it contains 404 verses, and 44 of those refer to Babylon. That's 11% of the book of, of Revelation devoted to the future end of Babylon. And in Scripture, Babylon means Babylon. There is good reason, and I, and, and I respect those who think it's, uh, the, the whole thing is actually Rome, and there's a good chance that it could be, because there, there's some really good uh, reasonings for it being Rome, but I believe when the Bible says Babylon, we know that the, the, the woman, the false religious system, I believe it's going to start in Rome, and then it's going to move itself into Babylon at some point. In fact, uh, we're not going to go there today for the lack of time, but I'd encourage you to read Zechariah chapter 5, specifically Verses 5 through 10, it talks about this woman being placed in a, in, a, in a covering, in a basket, and she is taken to Shinar, which is Babylon, where she will be placed upon an altar. And so we know that that's going to happen in the last days, and that's ultimately where it's all going to end. History began in Babel, in Babylon, and it's going to end there as well. The devil has always sought to have himself worshipped. He has always sought to pollute and corrupt uh, humanity with his false religious system. And so we're going to see this morning that Babylon literally means Babylon, and it will be destroyed. This city that's, again, on the, on the shores of the Euphrates River that we, we know in history was conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And we'll see this morning that it wasn't out of some great battle. It happened very quietly and very peaceably, relatively. The city was not destroyed. In fact, over the years, even after uh, the Medes and the Persians invaded Babylon, when Alexander the Great in Greece came after it, he died in Babylon and he kept it because it was beautiful. They did so much work. There's no reason to to blow this thing up or to, to destroy it. It was one of the seven wonders of the world, the hanging gardens and many other things. 
So it was there, and it slowly, slowly, slowly over the passages of time just slowly went into ruin. But the Bible says that it's going to be destroyed in an hour, in a very definitive moment of time. And that, folks, has not happened yet. And my hope today is to show you through the scriptures that that is the case, that Babylon has yet a future ahead of it, and it will ultimately be destroyed exactly as the prophets have foretold it, specifically Isaiah and Jeremiah. We're going to look at some of those passages this morning, but she will be destroyed once and for all. God is going to finally have his way, excuse me, in his judgment, not only upon the harlot church, but also on the Antichrist kingdom, which always has has, has had at its foundation Babylon, the very spirit of Babylon. And so we'll look at that. We'll look at that. In fact, let's look at the first verse of it. It says, after these things, after these things, does this phrase ring a bell? In, in the Bible, we've seen this phrase occur over eight times in, in, in the book of Revelation specifically. We saw it in Revelation chapter 4 and other, other verses. And really what this is, is the Greek word metatauta, after these things. And this is important because the first time we see it was in Revelation 4 verse 1 where it says, it, you know, Jesus wrote this, these letters to the seven churches. And when the church age was finished, it says, after these things, when the church age is wrapped up and, and we're done, what happens? The church is raptured. So we are still living in that church age. And when the church age is done, we are going to be raptured. And then it says in verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, after these things. And then it talks about the heavenly scene. And then we quickly get into, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the great tribulation period outlined for us in chapters 6 through 19. And so we see this phrase, and really what it does is it keeps the prophecy going, because you can understand chronologically where you're at, because when it says after these things, it stands to reason that it's after the things that were previously spoken of. Does that make sense? It's sort of like a, a, a roadmap, if you will. So when it says after these things, you can trust that what happened before has already happened, and now something new is happening, and you see it eight different times throughout Revelation. And notice in verse 2, and he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison of every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. And we saw in Revelation 14, verse 8, <clears throat> excuse me, in this um, really, uh, you have to bear with me here. <clears throat> Boy, dry air is killing me this morning. Anybody suffering with dry air? <sighs> Maybe the Lord's trying to tell me, Rob, slow down. In Revelation 14, verse 8, it says, That Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. It also says it in Revelation chapter 16, verse 19, as part of the Seventh, uh, seventh bowl of wrath that is poured out on the earth. What does it say? The great city was divided into three parts, and the city of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God and gave her the cup of the wine of the fierceness, notice, of his wrath. His wrath. Notice that uh, Babylon has been the source of everything unclean. <clears throat> and when it occurs, when it is built, after the church is removed, it's going to be like a magnet attracting every evil thing. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 13, it says, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse. Notice, deceiving and being deceived. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says, that The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. In 2 Timothy, also in chapter 3, it says this, But know in the last times, perilous times will come. Have you noticed there's been perilous times? And we're not even really there yet, but we're already seeing the birth pangs, right? Anybody notice the birth pangs? There's birth pangs. We've been going through them this year. And it's it's just the beginning. And I'm so glad, because I don't like conflict. (laughs) I'm looking forward to being removed before these things really start to ramp up. But notice, 
Perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boaster, proud, unthankful, unholy, without self-control, heady, strong-minded, lovers of pleasures more than a lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. We see that in the world right now. You see that even within the church right now. And this is a real, a real wake-up call for all of us to really dig in. This is not a time for us to be uh, relaxing and going on vacation in our minds, but we really have to, in the time that we're living in now, we got to be sober, we got to wake up. Now more than ever, get into the Word of God. And as you're getting into the Word of God, read it and pray over it and ask God to change you on the inside and mold you and continue to use you and baptize you with the Spirit of God to fill you with His Spirit. The world needs to see a church that's on fire again Our lamp and our flame has gotten low and it's a flicker. And right now, that's where we're at, folks. And God wants to fan that flame. Will you be willing to be fanned? Will you be willing? Are you willing to let the Lord fan that flame and say, Lord, light me up again? I need it. Do you need it? I want that more than anything. And I think he's doing it. I really do. And I pray for you as well. And again, no condemnation. Just get into the word. Be in prayer. Come to the meetings. Come to our Tuesday night prayer meetings. But these are the times. These are the signs of the times. And we're already seeing these things happening. People being deceived and deceiving. I even think of our mainstream media. It has been deceived and it's also deceiving millions of Americans right now. It's deceiving all of you. Have you noticed that? It itself is deceived and it is deceiving True? I believe it's true. With all of my heart, I believe that's true. And what a great disservice they are to America. But notice this Babylon, when it falls, it says it's become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, a cage for every unclean and hated bird. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus spoke a parable of a mustard seed, and he says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and they lodge within its branches." Whenever you see birds like this, it's always a reference to demonic activity. And this great monstrosity of the mustard tree, the church, there's there's elements of it that are really huge. And and the birds of the air, demonic activity, and those uh, paying heed to doctrines of demons, they're all lodging in its branches, and it's no longer this pure, holy thing. It's become a monstrosity. In some churches, you, you, the people don't even bring their Bibles. What a shame. When you come into a church, you should have your Bible. You should be opening your Bible. But there's churches in this city who people aren't even encouraged to bring their Bibles, much less open it. And instead, they're entertained by music. They have a great big worship team, and it's wonderful. You know, they got this great team. It's huge. The lights, spotlights are going all over, you know, little swirly thingies and all that other stuff. It's all happening. And the pastor gets up and he teaches a 15-minute sermon and then he says, let's just do some more worship, you know. And then they worship and they talk about their feelings. It's not right. But things have gotten like that. And so the church has become like that. Notice in verse 3 in our text again, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and this is true. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, unless you receive of her plague. See, the heart of the Lord is and always has been for his church um, uh, and also those who come to Christ in the great tribulation to come out of the apostasy. Even today, come out of the apostasy. If you are involved in a false religious system, come out of it. If you belong to Roman Catholicism and you love Jesus and are not getting fed or are being fed false doctrine, come out of it. Come out from it. If you are in a Protestant church and you love Jesus and you're not getting fed and you're getting fed false doctrine instead, come out of it. Come out of it. 
How is it that you can go into a church and not be fed the, the, the word of God and open the Bible? And yet that's what is happening in many places today. And it's a real shame. We've missed the mark. Not you specifically, but the church in totality is missing the mark. We're missing the mark. We're no longer desiring to, to reach the lost. We no longer have a desire to see people come to the Lord. We're too afraid to speak anymore publicly about Jesus. And there's something wrong there. That's why we need the Spirit of God. That's why we need to wake up. Because I don't know if you've noticed lately, but I'm seeing things. It's so clear to me. Is it clear to you? It's becoming clear as crystal to me as we go on exactly what's happening. And I'm confounded and bewildered and I'm heartbroken. At the same time, I know where it's going. And God may give us grace for another four years, perhaps. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said to them, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This doesn't mean that you can't be around unbelievers. Otherwise, how would people know the Lord? But being in cahoots with them, doing the things that they do, going to the bars, going to the strip clubs, doing whatever else you do, do not be unequally yoked together with them. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? And notice, in what agreement what part does Christ have with the devil? Or what part has an unbeliever with a believer? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. God says, I will dwell in them and walk in them, among them. I will be their God, they shall be my people. Therefore, what's the, what's the exhortation? Come out from among them and be separate. Come out from among them and be separate. Do not touch what is unclean. And what is the promise? I will receive you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And if that sounds like just a New Testament thing, we see it in the Old Testament too in Jeremiah. What does it say in Jeremiah 50 verse 8? Move from the midst of Babylon. And here's the exhortation of God to those who are going to be uh, believers in the end days. Yes, you can still receive Christ after the churches are moved, but you've heard this before. It's very difficult. The delusion is going to be so great, but here's the thing. God in his mercy can even reach a heart even then. And so those people who are going to be in that system, if they haven't already died, from all the plagues and all of the natural things that God is, supernatural things that God's going to do, what is his exhortation to them? And it goes all the way back to Jeremiah 50 verse 8. Move from the midst of Babylon. Get out of the land of the Chaldeans because her judgment is coming. She's got a date with destiny. She's got a date with the hammer. <laughs> She's got a date with the hammer. In Jeremiah 51, verse 6, flee from the midst of Babylon and everyone save his life. Do not cut off, do not cut her, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, do not be cut off in her iniquity. For this is the time of what? The Lord's vengeance. He shall recompense her. Jeremiah 51, 45, my people go out of the midst of her. It's like God is pleading. And at the time when this all is coming, hopefully there'll be copies of the scripture where they can read and they can see this warning. My people go out of her midst and let everyone deliver himself from the fierce anger of Jehovah, of the Lord. In Isaiah 52, 11, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, be clean for you who bear the vessels of the Lord. So important for us to be separate from those things. Are you separate from the things of the world? Am I separate from the things of the world? I'm, I, as often as I'm aware of it, I've got to turn away from it, right? And it's not like God is trying to take away your fun. <laughs> I used to think that, but you know what? The more I've walked with him and the closer I get to him, the more, I, the more I'm excited about being with him. And I'm excited about the love and the grace and the peace that he gives me that no one else can give. All those things that people are chasing after to get that love, to get that peace, to get that sense of belonging, apart from Christ, is, are the things that are actually going to destroy them. Do you see? And so when you find the love of your life, finally, the search is over. The search is over. Is your search over? Have you found Jesus? Have you found the love of your life? When I found my wife, the search was over. I don't need to go looking anywhere else. When the Lord made me aware that it was her, 
I become, I got like those horse with blinders. Don't need to go looking anywhere else. I found her. I found her. And thank God she found me. Notice verse 5 in our text. It says, for her sins, Babylon's sins, have reached to heaven. God has remembered her iniquities. See, God has a perfect memory. He is very much aware of the foundation of Babylon. What it has, the beginning of it, what he had to do to break it up and spread everybody across the earth. And, and, and they had to learn different languages because he, he broke up their languages. He understands the sin. He understands the foundation. He understands the roots of it that are in our culture right now, all over the world, actually. And you cannot pull the wool over God's eyes. You cannot. He's omniscient. Try playing chess with God. I'd like to see Kasparov and those other fancy Russian guys go to, go to sit down at a chess match, and the Lord just shows up and goes, the game's over. What do you mean? I haven't even moved a piece. Well, go for it. I'll show you. It's going to be over. I got move. Queen's Gambit means nothing. I got to move, and one move, I can checkmate you and throw them right off. What? I, I never heard of that before. The Queen's Gambit, I knew it, but what, what's a, a, a... Yeah, he's that good. <laughs> Amen? Isn't he that good? Can I get an amen in the house? Yes, he is that good. I love him. Do you love him? I love him. He's so good. In spite of all the nasty, filthy, ugly stuff we're going through, aren't you ready to be done with it? I'm ready for the election to be over and us to take off these masks and put our things back together again. I'm sick of this. Looking forward to it. Lord, help. Amen? (laughs) But notice in verse 6, he says, Render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works in the cup which she has mixed. Mix mix double for her. God is going to take wrath out on this system that has plagued the earth from its very core, from its very beginning. Notice verse 7. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I am a queen and am no widow, and I will see no sorrow. Therefore, notice, her plagues will come in one day. One day. They will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong is... The Lord God who judges her. In Isaiah chapter 47, it says this, Therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, speaking of Babylon, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. This is Babylon boasting of itself. And you notice how God right here at the very end in Revelation is saying, I know what that passage spoke of because I wrote it because that was what was in your heart. But I'm telling you now, you are will you will be judged. And this is what you're saying. Nor shall I know the loss of children. Then verse 9 of Isaiah 47, but these two things shall come to you in, mo- in, a one- in a moment and one day, the loss of children and widowhood. And he goes down in verse 11 of that same chapter and he says, therefore evil shall come upon you, Babylon. You shall not know from where it arises and trouble shall fall upon you and you will not be able to put it off and desolation shall come upon you, what? Suddenly. Suddenly, which you shall not know. It's going to happen suddenly, folks. History proves that it didn't happen suddenly. Babylon was never destroyed. It slowly went into ruin. It was never, ever destroyed. That means that it has to be something yet future. See, after the, the church is removed, we believe, now you may think that there, it's not possible for Babylon to be rebuilt again, but it's not really that big of a deal. Chicago and Dubai, these cities have been destroyed from fire and other things, and they have built themselves up in a very short period of time. A very short period of time. And some believe that after the church is removed, there may be a period of time, and it could be 20, 25 years. It could be five years. We don't really know. But there, there could be a period of time before the Antichrist makes that treaty with, with Israel. And then, at that point, is when that seven-year period starts to tick off, that 70th week of Daniel. Okay? So there could be a period of time there for Babylon to be rebuilt. And it's already in the process right now. I don't know if you knew that. We'll look at some pictures later. But notice in verse 9, the king of the earth who committed fornication, the kings of the earth, live luxurious with her, will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her great torment, saying, alas, alas. And that is the word that we, where we get uh, the word woe from. Uh, it, it means just, uh, and it's an exclamation of grief, 
and uh, she's going to say, alas, alas, for that, that great city, Babylon, that mighty city, for what? In one hour, one hour, your judgment has come. Your judgment has come. And you're going to see in Revelation chapter 18, um, verse 16 and verse 19, the same phrase, alas, alas, the great city clothed with fine linen, alas, alas, that great city who with all of her ships on the sea, they're all going to be looking at her, seeing her destruction, her burning. For in one hour your judgment has come. In Revelation, uh, or the 17th verse of the chapter that we're looking at this morning, what does it say? For in one hour. Now, I'm making a point here. I'm saying one hour. It's going to happen in one hour, in a day, in an hour. It's going to happen very suddenly. It says in verse 17, it says of this chapter, in one hour, such great riches come to nothing. In verse 19, it says, for in one hour, she is made desolate. Do you get the point? It's going to happen suddenly. It's never happened suddenly. And so why build Babylon anyway? Henry Morris says this. He says, not only is it the, in the beautiful and fertile Tigris-Euphrates plain, but it is near some of the world's richest oil reserves, because it's right there near Babylon, or right there near Baghdad. It's, it's, um, I believe Babylon is just a little bit north of, of, of Baghdad, or it might be the other way around, I forget, but very close by. <clears throat> Excuse me. Computer studies for the Institute of Creation Research have shown, for example, that Babylon is very near the geographical center of all the Earth's land masses, so it makes a great uh, strategic place to have a city. It is within navigable distances of the Persian Gulf and is at the crossroads of the three great continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa. And there is no more ideal location anywhere for a world trade center, a world communication center, a world banking center, a world education center, or especially a world capital. With all these advantages and with the head start already made by the Iraqis, it is not far-fetched to suggest that the future capital of the United Nations Kingdom, the ten-nation federation established at the beginning of the tribulation, should be established there. And we know that that is happening. We know that that is happening. The Iraqis, Saddam Hussein, we're going to look at this a little bit later, has been building it, had been building it up until the time he was captured. But ancient Babylon has not been destroyed. So there are some key passages that we're, going to, we're only going to look at a few of these because of time. But notice when it says in one hour, in verse 10 here, it says in one hour your judgment has come. And these are the key passages, and we're going to look at those. Because remember, when the Medes and the Persians, again, when they invaded Babylon in 539 B.C., and it's recorded for us in Daniel 5, remember when Belshazzar was having that drunken orgy with all the articles of the temple that, they, that Babylon, that Nebuchadnezzar had gotten from the temple in Jerusalem? And the king is sitting there having this drunken uh, party, and he sees the writing on the wall. It was that very night that the Medes and the Persians, they were already damming up the river north of Babylon and diverting the water so that they could come right under the bridge because the stream of Bab- or the river of Euphrates ran right center through the city of Babylon, right straight through it, and there was a gate. And that gate, or the water coming in, um, kept the soldiers or anybody entering. But once that river was dammed up, we'll look at this in a few minutes, they were able to just come in and the city was taken without anybody having to fight. It was a done deal. And... And so he didn't come in, Cyrus, when he invaded of the Medes and the Persians. He didn't destroy the city. It was too beautiful. And he was a polytheist himself, and he wanted to appease the gods. There was no reason to destroy such a beautiful city. Now it's his, right? Wouldn't you do that? Why would you destroy a city if you don't have to? Herodotus tells us uh, this. He says, Cyrus conducted the river by a channel into the lake, And so he made the former course of the river passable by the sinking of the stream. And when this had been done, the Persians, who had been posted for this very purpose, entered by the bed of the river Euphrates into Babylon, the stream having sunk so far that it reached about to the middle of a man's thigh. And those Babylonians who dwelt in the middle did not know that they had been captured. And so there was no need for a big bloody battle. They were taken over very quickly. They had no idea. So this is not the destruction of Babylon. 
but yet the prophets tell us that it will be destroyed. So this can't possibly be what it is. I remember in 1990, I was in Europe and actually in the British Museum in London, I got to see the Cyrus Cylinder. And there's uh, some other proof that shows this. Right on the Cyrus Cylinder, Cyrus put this. He says, without, and these are his own words on the cylinder that I saw. With, without any battle, Sparing Babylon any calamity, I, Cyrus, king of Babylon, when I entered Babylon under jubilation and rejoicing, troops walked around Babylon in peace. I did not allow anybody to terrorize any place of the country of Sumer and Akkad. I drove for peace, I strove for peace in Babylon and in, and in all his other sacred cities. I returned to these sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries of which have been ruins for a long time, the images which used to live there and establish for them permanent sanctuaries. So he didn't destroy it. He came in and actually fortified it. And he goes on and he says, And I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. Furthermore, I resettled, I unharmed in their former chapels, the places which make them happy. May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities ask daily Bel and Nebo for a long life for me. All of them I resettled in a peaceful place, ducks and droves. I I endeavored to fortify, repair their dwelling places. So it was never destroyed. It was never destroyed. In fact, John Walvoord, who is a, a real wonderful man, a prophecy expert, he said this, as far as the historic fulfillment is concerned, it's obvious from both scripture and history that these verses have not been literally fulfilled. The city of Babylon continued to flourish after the Medes conquered it, and though its glory dwindled, especially after the control of the Medes and the Persians ended in 323 BC, the city continued in some form or substance until AD 1000 and did not experience a sudden termination such as is anticipated in this prophecy. Amazing. In fact, we're going to look at some verses below that speak of Babylon will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know if you've been to Sodom and Gomorrah. (laughs) There's nothing there. It's been destroyed, Genesis 19. When we go to Israel, we see the we go on by the Dead Sea, and, and that city is no longer there. The remnants of it are there, but it's been destroyed. Un, uninhabitable has always been. It's never been inhabited ever since that happened. And Babylon in the future will be built again. The Antichrist will be there, and it will be destroyed, and it will lay waste. Get this, for at least a thousand years. Because remember, when Jesus comes back to the earth, Babylon is still going to be there, but it's going to be destroyed, and its smoke is going to ascend forever and ever. That's what the Bible says. So it's still going to be in ruin, and you'll be able to visit it in your new body when you come back with Christ. You can take a trip to Babylon and have lunch on the outskirts of it and see the smoldering. Take a little basket with your family and friends. Have a little worship service. Maybe bring some marshmallows and light it over the fire. But notice what it says in Isaiah 13. Notice... Isaiah 13, speaking of this day, it says, The day of the Lord. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt. And they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes. We know that the day of the Lord is really, it really begins at the rapture of the church and lasts for some time afterwards, at the very least through the tribulation period. The day of the Lord is God's wrath. And notice, he's speaking about this place, this Babylon. He says, The day of the Lord comes, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land, speaking of Babylon, to lay it desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened, and it's going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. And notice what it says, I will punish the world Notice, it's not just Babylon. He says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. It's going to happen suddenly. In Isaiah 13, verse 19, it says, In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited. Today, it's being inhabited. Right now, Babylon, there are uh, Arabs and people in the ruins of Babylon, 
We'll see pictures here shortly. But notice, so this can't be something that's already happened. It's yet future to us. Because it says it will not be, it will never be inhabited. And if God says it's never going to be inhabited, like Sodom and Gomorrah, he means what he says. He doesn't need to make up anything. Nor Notice what it says in verse 20 of Isaiah 13. Nor will it be settled from generation to generation, because the millennial reign, people are still going to be living, right? And that thing is still going to be smoking, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will shepherds make their sheepfolds there. And yet, what do we see in Babylon? Even in the late 19th century up to the current day, we see these things happening. In fact, as we look at, um, we're going to look at some chapters in uh, Jeremiah 50 and 51. And there's, uh, I'm not going to leave this up here for very long, but if you look at uh, Jeremiah's 50, chapters 50 and 51, and you look at uh, Revelation 17 and 18, which we have been going through, there are so many parallels between these two things, because God speaks of a, of a golden cup, and the fact that Babylon dwells on many waters, that it's involved with nations, that it's named the same, that it's destroyed suddenly, it's destroyed by fire, it's never to be inhabited. And God's people flee, and heaven rejoices. These parallels are in the Word of God. And so let's look at a few of these. We're just going to look at a handful of these. And they go, they go pretty quick. It says in Jeremiah chapter 50, For behold, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be captured. And again, this is not referring to um, this must be referring to Babylon's final destruction uh, and yet future because that's never happened. In fact, when you look at what happened in Persia or in Babylon when the Medes and the Persians came, there were at least four things that happened. The Persians came from the east. They didn't come from the north. The Medes and the Persians, they came from the east. Secondly, when Cyrus took Babylon, he didn't lay waste to the city. We know that. And no one fled from the city. Because Daniel was still there. Daniel served under Cyrus and under his successor. No one fled. Notice what it says in Jeremiah 50, verse 12 and 13. Your mother shall be deeply ashamed. She who bore you shall be ashamed. Behold, the least of the nations shall be a wilderness, speaking of Babylon, a dry and a land and a desert, because the wrath of the Lord shall because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited. She won't be inhabited. She will be wholly desolate. Everyone who goes by Babylon shall be horrified and hiss at all of her plagues. In Jeremiah 50, 26, what does it say? Destroy her utterly. Let nothing of her be left. In Jeremiah 50, 39, it says, it's It shall be inhabited no more forever, nor shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. In Jeremiah 51, 37, Babylon shall become a heap, a dwelling place for jackals, an astonishment and a hissing without inhabitant. That has never happened. It is still doing fine right now. There are people living in Babylon, even as early as the 19th century. In Jeremiah, finally, in Jeremiah 51, verse 43, her cities are a desolation, a dry and a, a wilderness, a land where no one dwells, through which no man passes. I will punish Bel in Babylon. I will bring out of his mouth what he has swallowed, and the nation shall not stream to him anymore. Yes, the wall of Babylon shall fall. Now let's go back to uh, Isaiah 13, because let's take a look at something here that's really interesting. It says that it will never be inhabited, and it will be, nor will it be settled from generation to generation, nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. But what is interesting here is that there's a photo that was taken, and this is in Babylon, of, of people, uh, shepherds, uh, uh, with their flocks in Babylon. And on the back side of this photo, it actually says a typical Arab village uh, in Lower Babylon, in Mesopotamia, and this was uh, in the late 18th century. We see also another photo of an Arab dwelling at Babylon in 18, around 1899. You can see a man up there. He's, he's dwelling in it. And yet the Bible says that it's not going to be inhabited. It's going to be without inhabitant, that there's going to be nobody around. It's going to be desolate for, for good. And if God says it, he means it. And this is further proof that God 
says what he means, means what he says. When he says that it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And folks, it's yet future to us because these photos don't lie. There's even a mosque uh, that's pitched on some of the ruins there in uh, Babylon right now. There's a picture of it right there. And not only that, but Saddam Hussein, when he came into power uh, from 1979 until 2003, he saw himself as like Nebuchadnezzar reincarnate, and he wanted to build Babylon back to its former glory days. And you remember in the Gulf War, when we went over there and destroyed a lot of things, the Allied forces in the United States, they didn't shoot down and blow up all of his mansions, all of his palaces. You're going to see pictures of them in just a second, because those things remained, and that's going to be the very foundation, we believe, of what is coming yet. They're beautiful buildings. They spent millions and millions, billions of dollars on these things. And so Babylon is just waiting for the church to go bye-bye. Babylon is waiting for the church to be removed. And it can continue its progress. And the unchurched person could care less. Oh, cool, Babylon. I've heard about that. Anybody with any kind of discernment knows that nothing good happened in Babylon and neither anything good will happen in Babylon. But to the, uh, to the unchurched, unregenerate man, they're going to think it's really awesome. Hey, we're returning to our foundation. That sounds like such a good thing, doesn't it? Sounds very patriotic. Sounds very, ah, we're finally coming back to the beginning, back to our source, our origin again. Boy, that feels so good. It sounds so good, but it's so deadly. Saddam Hussein was rebuilding it. In fact, the, re, the rebuilders who were building the palaces right on the foundation of Nebuchadnezzar's palace, they actually he built his palace right on the foundation of Nebuchadnezzar's palace. They spent and they, they, they took bricks and they kilned, they kilned them, they kiln dried them so that they would last for a long time. Millions and millions of bricks they, bent, they, they, they put in to uh, rebuild Babylon. And on each of those bricks, guess what it says inscribed on the side of the brick? Rebuilt in the era of our president, Saddam Hussein. Wow, how modest of him. But it already has a foundation. Here are some pictures the rebuilt walls of Procession Street rise from the ruins of ancient Babylon. We see also that the government actually had plans to build the Tower of Babel, the ziggurat that they were planning on building. They didn't get that far because Saddam was captured, if you remember, and he was running around the country until the Allied forces caught him. And can I just tell you a little story that does my heart some good? I probably shouldn't say this, but I probably will. Saddam Hussein, remember when he was in that little foxhole and they finally found him in Tikrit, I think it was? Somebody had told me who knows the guy who was there. They opened the hole and they saw Saddam. And, and Saddam, you know, realized he was caught and he was done. Um, that he, he, he actually swore at one of the soldiers. And, and the soldier just reached down and just gave him one. And, um, and that's probably not a really nice thing to say, but I just, in passing, I'll share it with you. But, um, but he had it coming, didn't he? Think of the millions of people that he murdered, the Kurds that he murdered with mustard gas, tortured them. His day has come, and his day did come, didn't it? But we also see in Babylon, even today, the entrance to Saddam Hussein's palace at night. It looks beautiful. And you can also see the walls of Babylon built on the original foundations here. So there's already, you know, a reconstruction of the, of the, of the pagan temple of uh, Ninmak, viewed from the Ishtar Gate. Uh, the Ishtar Gate has been rebuilt half size, and it's all blue and looks really beautiful. I didn't get a picture of that for you, but it's a really beautiful place. But Babylon is already being built. It already has its foundation. And this picture is really interesting because it shows Saddam Hussein's palace overlooking Nebuchadnezzar's palace. You can see it off in the distance. Nebuchadnezzar, or, um, Saddam Hussein's palace, and his palace actually looks down upon one of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's palace because, you know, naturally, Saddam Hussein wanted to be, in, you know, in superior over his ancestor, right? He was a very modest man. I don't know if you knew that. But um, so those are some pictures that Babylon has already taking shape and it's all ready to go. Once the church is removed, it will start building again. When that's going to start, we don't know. 
but it's already in the works. So back in our text in verse 11, it says, Now the merchants of the earth, they will weep and they'll mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. The merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood and bronze and iron and marble. Verse 13, And cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and I love this one, this is, actually I don't love it, it's just interesting, and bodies and souls of men, bodies and souls of men, when I think of the bodies of men, I think of human trafficking, certainly this has been the buzzword in the last 10 years, it was always going on, but it's been really uh, heightened uh, as of late. In fact, a man, a man who used to fellowship with us is now working down in Florida, and he was partly responsible for one of the biggest human trafficking busts in the history of that state. But the bodies and souls of men, and I think of the souls of the men, and you think of how many people have been seduced by the, uh, the false apostate religious system. Notice in verse 14, the fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. You're going to see a lot of things that say no more at all. Your doom is is coming. Uh, Your goose is cooked. And all these things are no longer going to happen any longer. You're going to see that happening. You're going to see that as we read. But notice in verse 15 of our text, the merchants of these things who become rich by her, they're going to stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Notice in verse 17, for in one hour, in one hour, it's going to happen in one hour, very suddenly, it's never happened before, it's yet future, it's going to happen. In one hour, such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, they stood at a distance and they cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, Who, what is like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads and they cried, weeping and wailing, this great city, which is yet future, saying, alas, alas. In other words, this is so grievous. Everything, the foundation is being pulled out from underneath of us. That great city in which all who had ships in the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour, there it is again. I don't know if it could be any clearer. (laughs) The Lord is telling us, no, it didn't. It's never been destroyed, but it's going to be destroyed in one day, in one hour. For in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, heaven. Notice that. Is it okay to delight over the destruction of something? Well, heaven is going to rejoice, and I think we will too. Not because of the loss of life, because we know that God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, but isn't there a wonderful, um, there's nothing wrong with rejoicing when, when evil is vanquished and truth and righteousness is upheld. We should rejoice. When truth and righteousness prevail, no one wants to see anybody die. God doesn't delight in it. It breaks his heart, actually. But there comes a time when, the, when your rope, you come to the end of the rope and there's no other hope for you. That's why it's so important to receive Christ today. Don't wait around for these things. Verse 21, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, thus with violence the great city of Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you any more. No craftsman of any craft will be found in you any more. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you any more. In verse 23, the light of a lamp shall not be shine in you any more, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you any more, for your merchants shall were the, your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. All the nations are deceived by her delicacies. And they will be. So notice the six things that aren't going to occur in Babylon anymore. First one is it'll be thrown down. 
it shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, trumpeters shall not be heard. Craftsmen, gone. The sound of the millstone, gone. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you any more. The voice of the bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. All the things that we would look for in a civilized society, especially a godly society, music and dancing, these things are all wonderful and good. They are all going to be absent because she will be destroyed in a moment, in a moment. And notice the mighty angel in verse 21, it says, took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. Remember in Daniel, at the end of Daniel's explanation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, where it says the the stone made without hands like a mountain is going to come and it's going to hit the feet of that statue, which represents all the kingdoms of the world, and it's all going to come crumbling down. Who is that rock, that mountain that crashes the foundation? Notice it didn't start at the head, it hit the the feet, because if you take out the feet, everything falls. Jesus is that rock. When he comes back, and I'm looking forward, when we come back in the new year, on that second Sunday, I believe it's the 10th of January, we're going to start in Revelation 19, and we're going to talk about the second coming of Christ. I can't wait to get there, because finally, things are going to take a different tone after, uh, in the beginning of 19 and onward, it's going to be a completely different thing. Finally, we're going to see righteousness thwarting the plans of evil and having complete victory over it. But notice this angel took up a stone like a great millstone, threw it in the midst of the sea. Thus with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. I think the judgment is pretty severe. I think it's very final. There's a finality here that has never been known up until that time. I think we proved that, right, through the scriptures. We looked at Isaiah. We looked at Jeremiah. When it happens, it's going to happen very suddenly, and it's never happened suddenly, so it it is yet future to us. And it tells us right here in 17 and 18 that that's what's going to happen. The very end of end things. You recall in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus, and we'll take communion here in just a few moments, In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said, But whosoever causes one of these little ones who who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. And so we see Babylon is is, is very much responsible for a great deal And God is going to cast her like a millstone. He's going to cast a millstone in the ocean, signaling the finality of her destruction, of her end. She'll never be remembered again. It'll never be inhabited. While we are living with Christ on the earth for a thousand years. Are you looking forward to that? Can you believe it? I mean, it's, it's like really going to happen. We're going to be living with him in new bodies for a thousand years, and then it gets better. Then a new heavens and a new earth. This one is going to dissolve with fervent heat, Peter tells us, and then we are going to be with him. That is the eternal state. That's where we're going to be, and we'll have this new body that can withstand all this stuff. No more tears, no more crying, no more disease, no more masks. No more quarantining and shutting down small business, but it's okay for Walmart and these other big places to be, but shut down mom and pop and crush the economy so we can get our wicked agenda through. Did I say that out loud? Wicked agenda. It's so wicked. It's so wicked. It's Babylon. And I'm not saying that uh, our president, uh, I, I won't go there. I just, he's not the problem. But Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, it will be better for a millstone. And that's exactly what the reference here is making. I'm going to have my final end, my final end to it. Final, one final verse, and then we'll take communion together. You never knew and never thought I could get through an entire chapter. Go ahead. (laughs) 
I'm shocked too. <laughs> Honestly, we could have spent at least two weeks on this, but I really don't want to beleaguer it. But I'm having a lot of fun. I'll be honest with you. I'm enjoying these things. I'm learning so much. Never had to. This is the first time that I brought a congregation through the Book of Revelation, and I just wanted to give it everything I got, you know. And so, um, although I do apologize, I don't apologize. Uh, because I have, uh, I had to get my head around this. I've never been here before, and uh, I got to be honest. It's been one of the most enriching things of my life to do that. Final verse, though, for today, in Jeremiah fifty-one, beginning in verse fifty-nine. Let me just read a short passage, and then we'll get into communion. It says, "The word which," and, and again, this is speaking of Babylon again, and prophesying of Babylon's end. The word which Jeremiah the prophet commanded Saraiah the son of Neriah, the son of Masaiah, when he went with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. And Saraiah was the quartermaster, and so Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that would come upon Babylon. Now, the thing you have to remember is that in those chapters that we talked about, there were passages that were for the time that Babylon was going to be um, um, uh, dominated by the Medes and the Persians. There's, there's things in there that talk about that. But then there's other passages that clearly speak of a different time. You have to remember the prophets, as they were looking through time, as they would prophesy, they, they, were, they were thinking like this. Right, and they, they didn't understand that they were going to be. Um, uh, they didn't understand how many years would transpire between one vision or another. But looking through it, you can see that some of those things were very uh, succinctly fulfilled during the time of Babylon, during the time of Nebuchadnezzar, and the and the, and all of that. But there's also a great number of scriptures that speak of, and we've looked at some of them today that speak of future Babylon when it will finally be destroyed. Okay, So just take that in mind as you read. If you get a good commentary, you can read through those things and kind of make sense. Because I'll be honest with you, it takes some doing to kind of see it and uh, to go through it. But going back here, uh, it says, And Jeremiah said to Sarah, When you arrive in Babylon and see it and read all these words, meaning the book of Jeremiah, then you shall say, O Lord, you have spoken against this place to cut it off so that none shall remain it, in it, neither man nor beast, but it shall be desolate forever. Which it's never been, but it will be. Now it shall be, when you have finished reading this book, that you will shall tie a stone to it and throw it out into the Euphrates. Another millstone. Tie a rope, tie something around this and throw it in the Euphrates. And then you shall say, thus Babylon shall sink and not rise from the catastrophe that I will bring upon her, and they shall be weary. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. And so there it is. We see now this angel taking up a great millstone, throwing it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall be found no more. All of her plagues, all of her sorceries will come to an end. You know, there's, there, there's something about the release of having things finally come to, a, to fruition. Sort of like the way we feel right now. We're waiting upon the, the still the results and all the shenanigans and the crookery. We're still trying to figure that out. And we're still wanting, desiring with everything in us to, be, to go back to some kind of normalcy like before. It's like we're, we're in this tension and it's so... Everyone in the country, everyone in the world is just dying for a release of this. That's unbearable. There have been times in my life since this has been going on that it became so unbearable to me I'll be honest with you and I think it's robbed some of you of what the Lord I think wanted me to be able to be because I had my head in so many things and being in Revelation at this time it was all piecing together very clearly to me and it scared the daylights out of me it wounded me and is wounding me, but I, I think the Lord is, is helping me around that corner. Because I know I can't stay in that place for much longer. It's destroying me on the inside.
And so this, at the end, will be that sweet release. Finally, when it all comes. That's why I'm so looking forward to Genesis, or I'm sorry, Revelation 19. After we get through Jesus coming back and the final death blow to the world and its kingdom and its system, it's going to be wonderful. I don't know about you, I'm look, really looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to righteousness. No longer judges of the Supreme Court, local and federal, hiding behind their chairs, not doing the right thing for fear. No longer legislators and governors and mayors hiding because they've been bought by foreign governments. When Jesus returns, there'll be none of that. There'll be only his reign, and he'll rule with a rod of iron for that thousand years. It's not going to be the exact utopia that we're looking for, but it's going to be wonderful because we know that there's going to be no impeachment proceedings. That we know that there's not going to be any nonsense. And when it does, he's going to squash it pretty quickly. When rebellion rises up, within the heart of man, there's that desire for restitution. It's justice, holy justice. There's nothing wrong with holy justice, holy justice. There's the the key word, the adjective, holy justice. I want that, don't you? And thank God that he has taken out the justice the judgment that I and you deserve. He took it out on his son. That we don't have to see death or hell. We'll never see it because of what he has done. And that's why we take communion this morning. What a wonderful way to celebrate before we get together on Christmas Eve. And by the way, that topic that night is going to be much different. I'm so glad to. But Jesus paid it all for us.